another guest episode. This time we have a media connoisseur. Definitely someone who's going to make me feel like I don't know what I'm talking about. Definitely going to have imposter syndrome as this guest and Jamie go at it in their encyclopedic knowledge of everything that's ever been made. Well, that's the the thing is, that's the joy of speaking with Dan, is that he doesn't make you feel out of your depth. Well, before we start talking about him like he's not here, <laughs> let's introduce him. Everyone, welcome our great friend, Dan Wink. Hi, thank you. Thank you. I'm worried I'm almost a little too hyped up. <laughs> like, like the real person can't meet match up to the legend but uh thank you for having me on guys no it's quite the opposite that was uh one of our you should see how i try to hype up some people just to make them uncomfortable <laughs> our last guest i went on like a two-minute rant about them without letting him speak at all first and anthony is not the one who rants on this podcast so that really means something <laughs> yeah. anyway dan i wanted to start obviously this is a disability-centric podcast. And you're friends with both Jamie and I. True. But besides that, do you have any experience with disability? I can't say I don't personally, or actually like even in like my media circle, my circumstances growing up. uh, No, I I can't say I have experienced disability. So then do you think Jamie and I have done it justice? By being disabled, do you think we've been disabled enough to experience disability for you? I feel like this is a question there's like no possible right answer for. The answer is yes, of course. (laughs) Okay, 10 out of 10, meet all standards. (laughs) You're now a disability expert by being our friends. I will wear that badge of honor. (laughs) So, all right, well, I obviously hyped you up. But I don't think I'm wrong to say that you are a media connoisseur. Like, you are a lover of all things media, am I right? I'm I'm a nerd. Uh, the connoisseur part definitely makes me feel less shame about being a nerd. But yeah, I consume a lot of media, every, like books, movies, television, video games, what have you. And yeah, I guess my knowledge base is, can be a little encyclopedic. Like, not because I'm trying, it's just that's how my brain files stuff away without me even realizing it. It's really impressive. Anytime I've ever watched something with you, you're able to just like, be like, oh, so that guy, turns out he actually recorded the soundtrack for this other movie written about a book by this other guy. And like, you are the Wikipedia article. (laughs) It's fantastic. This is the end result of just casually reading Wikipedia, like for fun since high school. (laughs) <laughs> it's just shaped how my brain works. Your name should actually be Dan Hyperlink. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> because of the the web of knowledge that you are constantly sort of relating to the world. <laughs> okay, I'm going to file that one for later use. Thank you for the suggestion. Dan Hyperlink. <laughs> oh, so you started Wikipedia at a young age. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, me and Jimmy Wales, we founded Wikipedia. <laughs> it's like, he hits me up for money every year. Right. Oh, yeah, I do see those every time I go on Wikipedia. It's like, donate here. Do you remember what your first Wikipedia article was that you read? 
oh god it's so long ago i would have been about 15 i just remember it being a wondrous sight but i lose those earlier details ironically <laughs> have you ever edited a wikipedia page Yes, I have. I have contributed to a Wikipedia page on a couple of Tool songs, which is very on brand for me. And I, back in 2008, I think I may have made some edit to the Joker's Wikipedia page. You and Jamie were probably fighting for a last change. <laughs> I've never made any contributions to the Wikipedia page, but I do have an impression that I'm not very good at, but I insist on keeping alive for some reason. It's a very good impression. My impression of the Joker is ridiculous. <laughs> your Joker impression is wonderful. <laughs> it sounds very close to your Bob Dylan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you just got to take a little bit of Tom Waits and a little bit of Beetlejuice and then mix them together and bam, you got yourself a Heath Ledger Joker. Do you do a Joker, Dan? I do. Like, I kind of do like Bit of a Heath Ledger Joker, also kind of one of my own, but that's more influenced by Mark Hamill's on the animated series. But I'm going to just say straight up, I don't have the confidence to bust either of those out right now. Yeah, me too. I mean, that's exactly what I was just trying to work through as we were talking, Dan. It's like, it's this thing that I can only do when I'm drunk because I realize that it is kind of scary and slightly bizarre. And <laughs> yeah. Well, like, I'm also taking a few steps away from myself and imagining what it'd be like for my neighbors down the hall to just hear a raucous, high-pitched laughter all of a sudden with no context. <laughs> and it sort of feels like now is not the right time to be like an open fan of the Joker <laughs> for some reason. Yeah, I think society has been Jokerified out, like, ironically. Exactly. Yeah, we should wait a while before we start busting out the impression, I think. At least a few years. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Dan, you also have a degree in journalism from Carleton, right? No. So I originally did go to Carleton for journalism, but they have famously high standards for who gets from first year to second. And I did not meet those rigorous standards. So I ended up being an English and psych double major. Oh, awesome. Yeah. I think you and I met each other at uh, Rooster Pub several years ago in like 2013. Really? Yeah, we have a mutual friend uh, who runs a podcasting business and actually helped Anthony and I launch. And uh, I met this person for drinks and you happened to be at the table with him. And I don't remember the context or content of our conversation after that point because I think I drank far too many beer. It was just you guys comparing Joker impressions. Oh, that does sound consistent. This completely escapes my memory. Well. Also, you were getting drunk at Rooster's, the coffee house? <laughs> oh, the uh, the Atomic Rooster. Oh, okay. You know what? Now I'm remembering this a bit more. I, I don't remember that place. I just sort of remember the artwork on the wall and the frustration that I had trying to access their singular bathroom stall. I just associate that entire venue uh, with the extent of the hangover that came with going there. Oh, it's been too long since I've been to Atomic Rooster. I'm imagining, Jamie, that you're... Life is basically mapped out by how accessible their bathroom is. Uh, I used to plan my route according to uh, the most accessible bathroom uh, along the way. So do you have like a, a, a way to get through Carleton University based on the bathrooms? <laughs> That's a good, good question. There was one bathroom uh, in the 
the what was the building that contained Oliver's University Center? Yeah, the University Center. So there was a bathroom there that was absolutely wonderful. The problem was that it it it, it didn't always lock. Oh, fun. Yeah, and there was also like. The highest concentration of drunk people on campus was probably in that area. So people would often stumble in if I tried to use that bathroom. Mm. So it was always like kind of a, a risk reward. Uh, there was there was always a risk associated with going there. I don't know. So guys, I feel like we have to address the elephant man in the room. Oh, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> For this episode. We watched the first black and white movie that we probably will ever watch for this episode or for this podcast. Uh, unless we can figure out a way to watch uh, The Lighthouse for the podcast, but I don't <laughs> think there is one. I've watched it several times. I'm really not sure how you'd be able to get an interpretation of that movie pertaining to this podcast out of it. Though It's always just a good movie to discuss regardless. You might be able to argue that... Like irritable bowel syndrome is a type of disability, mm. in which case Willem Dafoe is eligible, but that's a stretch. Okay, so wait, I've never seen The Lighthouse. Here's, here's what I'm picturing, based on what I've heard so far right now. It's about a guy who lives at the top of a lighthouse, but he has IBS and the bathroom is at the bottom of the lighthouse. So every time he has to go to the bathroom, you watch him have to race down the lighthouse to get to the bathroom. I'm pretty sure that's actually a scene in it. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's more like he gets drunk and shits himself. Uh, so right, we're circling right back to Roosters at Carlton <laughs> Universe. All right. One of you who's obviously more qualified than me, explain what this movie is. I'll take the lead on that one. So The Elephant Man is a 1980 film by David Lynch. He who famously created Twin Peaks as well as like Mulholland Drive and uh, Blue Velvet. But The Elephant Man is one of his few, uh, I think it's his only biopic, uh, but befitting of David Lynch, who's known for his very surreal and nightmarish work. It's a very strange biopic that takes a lot of artistic liberties for the sake of like really immersing you in this dreamlike world and it focuses on john merrick who is a man living in victorian london and who almost since birth has been afflicted by a very severe physiological condition according to wikipedia he possibly had a combination of proteus syndrome and neurofibromatosis nobody knows but regardless the end result was his body was covered in non Cancer, well, at least non-malignant cancerous tumors, which made it very difficult for him to breathe, uh, converse, at least at first. And uh, he had a living uh, performing in various circus uh, sideshows across uh, England. And uh, the Elephant Man movie, Lynch's film, discusses his relationship with a London doctor, Frederick Treves, uh, played by the great Anthony Hopkins. Uh, Merrick himself is played by John Hurt, who most people probably know as the poor son of a bitch who gets a chestburster popping out of him in <laughs> Alien. <laughs> um, I, for, for whatever reason, they call him John Merrick in this movie, but his real name is Joseph Merrick. Yes! Yeah, it's just something that 
Frederick Treves did in his notes. He's like, yes, this man's name is Joseph. I'm just going to keep calling him John all throughout this account. And it kind of stuck. Oh. Yeah, it's I don't know why, but he's called John Merrick throughout all of this movie. <laughs> and I, I think the movie is based upon his like writings uh, of his experience with John, right? That, that is correct. So his affliction is really interesting. He, he looks kind of like he's uh, covered in a variety of uh, fungi or something. Like he looks a lot like the the, the flood enemy from the, the Halo series, oh, which wow. is an extremely unflattering comparison that is probably lost on a, a majority of listeners. Um, <laughs> but um, one of the kind of details that wasn't really clear in the film was that it is a, a progressive disease so he does sort of gradually lose functionality in his right side i believe over time and he had several operations to remove some of the tumors from his jaw and his mouth uh, because he was having difficulty speaking and eating and he didn't actually end up in the circus until such a time as he couldn't perform manual labor uh, because he had a he had a series of jobs after school like after the age of 13 he I'm not sure where exactly he did work, but but there was a period of time before he was an exhibit at a circus. <laughs> I know That's at correct. one point he tried to be like a door-to-door salesperson, and it didn't work out because people were like not even going to the door when they saw him at the door, which is so sad. But to describe him, I want to use the quote that Anthony Hopkins' character uses in the movie, which I love because, like, imagine this is how today's doctors talked about our diagnoses and disabilities. This is what he says in the movie. Note, if you will, the extreme enlargement of the skull, the right upper limb, which is totally useless, the alarming curvature of the spine, the looseness of the skin, and the varying fibrous tumors that cover 90% of the body. Like, imagine your doctor's like, note, his head merely doesn't turn to the left. He cannot really move his arms, and it's hard for him to breathe at night. It's like Anthony Hopkins is a more apt roaster than Jeff Ross, like just in his... (laughs) (laughs) This is just Victorian science summed up in one go. It's like... Yes, we're going to refer to this man as an unfortunate several times, and then I'm going to go home and experiment with morphine. <laughs> He's incurable. We don't treat incurables. But at no time have I met with such a perverted or degraded version of a human being as this man. <laughs> it sounds like he's flattering him almost. <laughs> Just in his manner of speech. I have to tell you, nobody's like you. I mean, so many normal people who have such boring predicaments. Tony, how much would you pay Anthony Hopkins to describe spinal muscular atrophy to you? <laughs> I just want people, I just want him to follow me around. And anytime someone asks me what's wrong, he goes, The patient's genitals remain entirely intact. <laughs> That's what I want. Imagine <laughs> you'd have Anthony Hopkins just follow you around and go, His dick works. Yeah, that's the important thing. <laughs> the soul-saving grace of this man's life. Jamie, how would, how would Anthony Hopkins describe your disability? 
How would Anthony Hopkins describe my disability? Yeah, in 1887. Well, I mean, he would definitely mention the alarming curvature of the spine, the extreme atrophy of muscle on the left side of the body, and the, the, uh, the hip dysplasia, you see, <laughs> that uh, does not allow him to sit straight despite his best efforts. And um, his feet, uh, they, they're absolutely, absolutely appalling. <laughs> uh, they have no shape whatsoever, and they are constantly maintaining a blue hue <laughs> that is reminiscent of, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it was pre-Smurfs. Pre-Smurfs, yeah. <laughs> and then he would cry one single solitary tear. Right, exactly. <laughs> and that would indicate uh, his absolute empathy. Yes. At first, a lot of people assume that that Merrick must not be all there mentally. They're assuming that because, by God, that'd be horrifying if he was. But no, actually, uh, Joseph Merrick was this very well-read dude, and he exhibits it throughout the movie. Though, the way he spoke in real life, from what I understand, probably would have been more impeded than he uh, speaks in the movie. Though he was always willing to just strike up a conversation with passersby his uh, hospital window. The crazy thing was his disability and uh, all of his protrusions were at first, I thought, just like skin and tumorous. But there was actually like his whole skeleton was changed, Mm -hmm. which is insane because they didn't really know at the time what to do. Yeah. It brings up a pretty important question. Well, not even a question because I think the answer is, for sure, yes. But Jamie and I would have been absolutely in the circus at this time. And hanging out with uh, the guy who played R2-D2, who's that uh, dwarf who helps uh, free Joseph Merrick towards the end. No way. That's the guy who was inside the R2-D2 suit, Kenny Baker. What? Yeah. There was a guy inside that? Yeah. Apparently, Kenny Baker and Tony Daniels, the guy who plays C-3PO, like, could not stand each other. <laughs> That's perfect, because they kind of hate each other in the movie. Yeah, you can really feel that robot chemistry. (laughs) Imagine growing up in that time, though, and being stuck in that circus. Interesting thing. Uh, It sounds like Joseph Merrick had a lot easier life than is depicted in that movie. Uh, Apparently, like, he voluntarily joined up with a lot of sideshows, and he spoke well of, like, a lot of the circus masters he worked with. Though, like, the show he went to in Belgium, like, that really bad one they showed towards the end, that probably was as bad as it is depicted in the movie. Well, it was, I don't really know much about, what do they call it, like, the penny gaff or whatever, where people would go around and pay tiny bits of money to go and stare at freaks, as they called them. Just to gawk. Yeah. And uh, actually, throughout the movie, there's an orderly at the, the hospital who basically does this that he pays people well he has people from a local pub basically gawk through merrick's window and it's interesting how they contrast this visual of this poor civilized deformed dude weathering the abuses of all these like feral almost like animalistic uh, people who are like hounding him it's neat interesting contrast it's almost just like the same as what it would be today but less filtered. Because I think people today, you know, you see someone at a grocery store even, and they kind of want to look at you. And they kind of want to stare. 
at your deformed feet and weird wrist maneuvers, but then you know that it's like not the appropriate thing to do. So you just kind of, they look the other way and they avert their eyes. But back then they like, there was nobody tweeting them yeah. that, that they shouldn't be doing this. And the circus created a space where it's okay to gawk at you? Absolutely, it did, yeah. Yeah, but what came first? The rude people or the circus? Like, was it that the circus made the people more comfortable to gawk? Or was it that people didn't care, so they made the circus? You know what I mean? I'm pretty sure that's what Dumbo was about. <laughs> Yo, do we have to watch Dumbo for this podcast? <laughs> I want to see Dumbo... Dumbo, but instead of Dumbo, it's like the Elephant Man instead. But it's the exact same plot, right down to the <laughs> right down to the racist birds. There's racist birds in Dumbo. Some crows that appear towards the end of Disney's Dumbo are of a certain stereotype that does not hold up super well today. <laughs> it maybe didn't back then. Oh no! At least it's a blessedly short film, only like just over an hour. Blessedly short. You- you can just get away with like making an hour-long animated movie back then and shipping it to theaters. Well, back then, to make an hour, an hour of animated movie would take 500 slaves 700 hours each. Probably. I'm going on a tangent and making fun, but if we're being serious, man, The Elephant Man may be one of the saddest movies I've ever watched, having seen it twice now. I saw it first when I was a kid, and I don't think that really registered with me how dark this movie was. I remember as a kid being like, I don't think I should be watching this. <laughs> it's like an upsetting film. Like, I'm just... Yeah. The boldness of young Tony watching it, that's impressive. I don't know if it's boldness as ignorance. Like, my parents probably put it on. They're like, this will teach them something about life. And then <laughs> I watched it and I was like, what? Like, obviously I have to identify with him. And I wasn't ready for all those life lessons, let me tell you. I will say that the movie was very immersive. Like, everything from, like, I know David Lynch is typically, well, I I know this from you guys basically telling me that his shtick is to make very convoluted plots and confusing imagery and basically just mess with you the whole time. Yeah, his whole thing is basically trying to emulate the experience of a dream or a nightmare. Mm. Even though, in comparison to his other works, The Elephant Man is fairly straightforward. There are a lot of very surreal moments. Uh, Towards the beginning, they show basically his mom being trampled by elephants. And apparently in real life, Joseph Merrick's mother, while she was pregnant with him, she was knocked over by an elephant somehow. But the way they depict it is like not very... Literally, it's this like cacophony of images that's very surreal and very Lynchian. Yeah, I read that she was potentially just fell over and there happened to be an elephant in the vicinity. And then that eventually turned into her saying that the elephant itself struck her down. And then she had this child. This poor elephant's been framed. Yeah, this (laughs) elephant's like, guys, I didn't have anything to do with this. You don't frame an elephant like that. He's never going to forget. <laughs> well, the um, I finally collected my thoughts, by the way. Right on. Hey, Jimmy. So, so the, the, for me, like the movie didn't uh, have the traditional rhythms of a biopic. Um, like it sort of feels uh, like Metropolis or 
Dark City or um, like a, a, a early 90s Tim Burton film in that mm. the it, it has so much atmosphere and the um, the the set design is incredibly detailed. Uh, and any shots like in in the Victorian like city streets are so immersive that I don't know they're like very layered and it it's, it seems like a whole other world. It doesn't feel like a um, like an exhibit trying to reproduce a particular era. It's it's trying to be like a a, a gothic horror of some kind, like a creature <laughs> feature. Uh, you know. Like the Elephant Man is is uh, Frankenstein or Dracula or uh, Nosferatu or whatever, uh, yes. and it, it it totally it totally works. It it draws you in. Like to be honest with you, I didn't know before reading the Wikipedia uh, article that John Merrick was even a real person, and I, maybe I should be embarrassed by that. But I thought he was may- maybe like like a Lynchian figment or something. And the, the fact that this is based on real world events is probably what grounded quite a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, and the fact that he could only sort of book bookend the film in dream logic rather than sort of root it in that. It's rare that you watch a biopic that is so concerned with vibes rather than just like mm-hmm. a literal retelling of a person's life. Yes. And which also successfully hammers home just how awful a time and place that would be to live. Yeah, like it, it very much ha- uh, hammers home um, how unfacilitating the real world is to Merrick's condition, mm-hmm. uh, and it contrasts heavily with the environment that he ultimately ends up living in until he dies, which is you know like a very um, uh, clean and orderly and uh, you know like a hospital environment essentially. Even just the sounds in the movie, there's this constant like din or hum of like machinery or like the air vents or whatever it is. And I I had to rewatch parts of it to like pull some clips. And it is very immersive because of that, because you feel like you're sitting in the room while he's showing the elephant man to, to the other doctors and stuff. It really brings you in and makes you feel like you're, there, even though obviously none of us can relate to being in 1986 or wherever this was. 1880s? 18, yeah. Yeah. David Lynch handling his own sound design is something that can actually be so personable. The other thing that it does is it kind of creates this constant unease. Like, once um, Merrick's face is finally revealed, there is still an unsettling kind of horror that permeates the movie and you're not really sure why like you 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 keep expecting Merrick to befall some sort of horrible fate like the um when he's when Treves finally like rescues him and brings him to the hospital and shows him to his colleagues and begins to treat him there there is still this sense that all will not be well and that it's inevitable that he gets pulled back into the cruelty of the real world Mm-hmm. And yeah, like I guess, like one issue that I kind of had with the movie is that it tries to portray, like it it wants to to be compassionate toward Merrick, but it also can't help but in many ways portray him as like a creature. There's the whole thing, like at the start of the film, where they don't reveal his face until about twenty five minutes in, 
which I felt is very much cribbed from from Jaws. Like it's building the anticip- <laughs> building the anticipation of how horrible he looks, right? And it's like in in the scene where uh, Treves discusses uh, Merrick's anatomy, like they 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 still don't show him yeah. in that. And I guess it's because they like you can't show a flaccid penis in a movie in 1980. But still, there's like there is this sense that the film uh, is frightened of him in equal measure as it wants us to care about him. So are you saying that you would have enjoyed the film better if you got to see his dick? Yes. Hey, hey, flash forward four years to that adaptation of 1984 that John Hurt also starred in, and he hangs some dong there. Yeah, and the movie was better for it. (laughs) (laughs) But, no, I definitely see what you're talking about, like how there's that very slow reveal of how Merrick appears, and I think Roger Ebert noted him, noted it in his review, like way back then in 1980, was like, "Well, is Lynch kind of indulging in the same sort of sideshow tactics as like the people he's denigrating in the movie?" Like right down to the fact that they didn't show Merrick's appearance in any of the posters or promotional materials. But then once it gets to the part of the movie where they reveal what he looks like in full. They just fully commit to it. Yeah, yeah, that, that's true. It, like, yeah, that's neat. Like, they don't flinch away from his appearance to the render of the movie. They will film him dead on, give him like beautiful close-ups, and like I thought that was an interesting way of humanizing him. And yeah, that that is a good point. And like, uh, it's always like fair lighting. Like, they're not trying to show him as like the creature in the corner. He is given sort of equal weight with like all other. Uh, actors in the frame and so after a while you become acclimatized to the way that he looks and you stop studying his face and his hair and like the superficial details that at first seem somewhat distracting but again like even just choosing to uh, put the film in black and white in addition to it i guess being easier to achieve the special effect or the prosthetics of his of his appearance it also harkens back to like monster films of of yesteryear. Yes. Well, this happened in the 1880s before color was invented. <laughs> True. Good point, Tony. Yeah. Oh, thank God I wasn't around for the 1920s. Everything would have been sepia-toned. <laughs> <laughs> but I will say that your your point about how they kind of built up to his reveal, I, I kind of like that because I think it almost gave me the same feeling that I bet you circus goers or carnival goers would have felt when they're standing there before they pull the curtain open and you're you're kind of that build up is what makes you really want to see him and kind of empathize with them a bit more once they do open the curtain exhibition and exploitation are like a very clear theme throughout it where even after uh Merrick is given those cozy porters at the hospital and he's seeing kind of like higher class, like upper class actors and socialites. Because the head nurse, who's fittingly named like Mother's Head, <laughs> like very on the nose, but also very British, like points out to Treves, like, aren't you showing him around just like his old circus masters used to? Uh, but you're just showing him off to upper class people rather than the lower classes willing to spend a couple of pennies on a sideshow. Yeah, I read that um, Merrick. He, he, he was fine with being in the carnival or the circus, but he didn't want to be 
on display for all the physicians for some reason, which I felt to be interesting that he drew the line there. Well, you and I, you can, you and I can totally relate to that. Like, I, I, I think I've mentioned before on the podcast, but like uh, when I was a kid, I used to hate uh, diagnostic sessions that I would have with new doctors when there was another surgery in my future because they would basically like survey my disability. And like, I remember a live diagnostic session one time in the late nineties with a a physician in Thunder Bay and the way he described um, how CP affects my body. He like touched upon parts of me that I thought were not disabled at the time, like as a kid. So it kind of like radically changed how I thought of my myself and my posture and whatever. Like it it, it was just like almost deeply insulting, even though he was using highly technical terms and it was completely impersonal and it was totally for the sake of pre-assessing what would be necessary to improve my um, situation or whatever. I remember leaving the doctor's appointment, like crying. I was like really upset. And that's probably what Merrick was trying to avoid because I don't know. We we just talked about this, like Hopkins language, his command of language makes it funny when he's describing people in such unflattering terms, but it also stays with you for life. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's so matter of fact, right? Like even although I think it's hilarious that he did do the whole, like, his dick still works thing. When he did that, he literally was like, now show everyone your dick. <laughs> like, yeah, that's degrading and humiliating. Probably way more so. Yeah, like you're being reduced to like a series of conditions and symptoms and on public display at the same time. But how is it different than when he was at the carnival? Like, why was he cool with that and even kind of sought that work out? But he didn't want to do it for the physicians. I'm just thinking like when it comes from someone who has been ordained a professional, then it seems to be that much more true. And and like, I guess in a carnival, like you expect people to be crude and honest and forthright about their their feelings, especially if you are being positioned as like a non-human, like an elephant man. But like in a in a professional capacity, you kind of hope that modern medicine and the people who facilitate it have more of an understanding. Because the idea is that if they don't understand you or they don't even empathize with you, then who will? Because they're supposed to be ostensibly the ones that understand you physiologically the best. I think there's also an element of them sort of it's more when you're at the carnival Everyone's kind of a freak at the carnival. Yeah. Whether you're paying admission or you're one of the acts, you're still kind of crazy. Yeah. And maybe in that environment, you're a lot more um, liable to be understood. (laughs) Yeah. But then when you're with your group of physician friends and they're like, yo, check out this guy's dick. It doesn't have any lumps on it. Yeah. He's like. Remarkable. Aren't you guys supposed to be helping me? Like, you guys have the power and the knowledge and the resources to do something about it. And now I feel like I'm just back at the carnival. They position you like a slab of, like, surgical filet mignon. Like, they're so excited to cut into you and and figure out what the fuck is wrong with you. Yeah. And so you, you feel in some way more consumed by them than you are by, like, the patrons of a... Or the customers at a carnival. 
Um, yeah, so I really do like how that is kind of where he starts to have agency again. And he turns from, well, at first, Anthony Hopkins thought he was basically just a homeless idiot. He called him like an imbecile. Fun fact about the word imbecile, that's actually my first trip to the principal's office was by calling my teacher's assistant, or not teacher's assistant, uh, EA, like educational assistant, calling her an imbecile because I thought it was a funny thing to say (laughs) because I watched it on a TV show. Who knows? Maybe it was Elephant Man. No, it couldn't have been because I remember hearing the word imbecile and it was like something like Steve Harvey called someone an imbecile and everyone laughed. And I was like, oh, that's a funny thing to call your friend. So I called my EA an imbecile and she started crying. Oh my God, goodness. And I was like, oh, sorry. Cut to me in the principal's office explaining that I don't even know what the word imbecile means. I thought it was just a funny thing to say to your friend. And he had to try to believe me. Ah, the innocence of use. (laughs) I think I got in trouble for using that word as well when I was a kid. I think when I said it, I just wanted to be like some supervillain in the Bond movie who would throw (laughs) that around. It's a fun word. Same with like insolent. I love there's a there's a scene in this film when uh Merrick's handler at the circus like comes to the hospital to try to basically steal him back from Anthony Hawkins. And like the two of them are standing in a staircase, just sort of fighting in close like exchanging uh harsh words in close proximity. And it actually does look like they're about to come to blows, or he's like Hopkins is about to get nudged down the stairs. And the guy is just like, I shall go to the authorities. And, and it's like, that is understood to be the worst possible or, or, or the height of conflict between them. By Jove, he's asking the magistrate to intervene. <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? Do you think that by the end of the movie, they did a good enough job of bringing his arc from homeless idiot, barely just here for a gaffe? all the way to fully-fledged human, just misunderstood and outcast? I'll go first. Um, uh, No. No. I really liked this movie, and I uh, very much appreciated uh, Hopkins and John Hurt's performance. And I don't know who the woman was who played the actress that comes to visit Merrick at some point. So that's uh, Anne Bancroft, famously known as the older lady who seduces Dustin Hoffman in The Graduate. Oh, okay, okay. She's wonderful in this film. And Bancroft was great. Yeah, there's a scene where her and Merrick exchange lines from Romeo and Juliet, and you actually feel uh, like a palpable chemistry between them, you know, despite her being behind a grotesque mask and, you know, she doing her darndest to look past his appearance. Like, it it is a touching scene. But... um, I didn't really like how Merrick is sort of portrayed as very pure in this film. And you also get the sense that he has no history before the carnival, which I think sort of does him a disservice. Um, Like not sort of depicting that there was a point where he was part of like working class society and he did try to make his way in the world. And he he was sort of uh, forced into show business. I think that's those are kind of like important details, um, and I also think that he he would not have been 
so infallibly kind. And I, I, I don't think that's my cynicism coming through. Like throughout the film, he is victimized heavily and repeatedly by like members of the general public, like, you know, by uh, members of high society, uh, arguably by Treves, uh, who misjudges several situations, especially at the start of the film when he's trying to figure out, you know, where exactly Merrick is at and the way that he sort of flounced him in front of his colleagues. And I think that like that pattern of abuse would manifest itself some way. And I don't think that Merrick himself would be such a docile creature. Like he would find some sort of outlet, you know, because hurt people hurt people. And it's just surprising to me that there is really no instance in the film where he fights back, except I suppose there is one scene where he declares himself not an animal. I am not an animal! <laughs> that scared me so much. I am a human being! And, and that's when he's trying to ride the, the train back to the hospital at some point. Uh, and he gets hounded by... Uh, members of the public and by the local police. And so, you know, that, that sort of makes sense, but generally speaking, like he's way too agreeable. And I just wish there was, I, I wish there was some scene where he kind of pushed back. It never happened. When you do lay it out like that, like this movie is a lot of just this poor guy receiving horrible, horrible abuse mm-hmm. and you just being forced to watch it. It'd be interesting to see like a more, faithful to history depiction of his life that factors in his more complicated relationship with being a circus sideshow mm-hmm. rather than one that portrays it as something that was very involuntary and cruel. Yeah. Yeah. Like something more nuanced where this is a movie about recognizing this dude's humanity, but mostly does that through just like depicting the abuses he receives. I like, I would love a season of, carnival devoted to the elephant man you know like something from frank darabont like in that world otherwise the movie is good of course and that brings up a a subject or a question that i wanted to ask you tony which is um do you think merrick is courageous that's a great question um i think at the time nobody knew what was going on and nobody knew what his his disability was. They had no way of helping him. And so I don't think he was, at, at the beginning at least, I don't think he was courageous to try to join the carnival, to enter, to basically just to make ends meet, right? But I think very quickly that would break your soul down and you'd realize everyone is there, not with you, but for you. Yeah, I think eventually it would get so hard that I think he's brave because he's never slept on his back and it would have just been an easy way out. Yeah, so it's worth knowing that in real life, Joseph Merrick died by dislocating his neck by sleeping in a more typical prone position than the sitting up position that was medically recommended for him. The movie makes it ambiguously suicidal. Yeah. But like real life, there's really not a ton to indicate either way whether it was accidental or intentional it's like a interesting like a very powerful but also kind of weird ending where like oh he kind of willingly kills himself after the best day of his life i'm not sure how i'm supposed to take his suicide as 
brave or dignified in a way, but like was it implied that it was suicide? The way he talks about wanting to, previously having talked about wanting to sleep like normal people and like yeah. how he's looking at that one drawing of the person sleeping on their side, like there implies like a level of intent to it, at least in Lynch's version. Right. In the movie, he does express a desire to sleep normally. Whether or not he's brave, I think that he had other options that were easier and he took a relatively harder, he chose a relatively harder life. Like one where he was able to like, like kind of demonstrate like his intellectual dignity. I think that was what was really cool about this movie was, and honestly just about him, is that he really strove, is that a word, to find a way to prove himself as more than just a pretty face. (laughs) He learned how to work it. Yeah, he figured out how he could, when people are like, make lemonade, what they mean is join the carnival. Like, if you're born with a face that only a mother could love, and your only course of action to make money is to basically let people exploit you, I think it does take some courage to put yourself out there in a way that's just like, all right, I'm gonna, you're just going to have to, I'm going to have to be fully okay with it for you. I mean, ultimately, there is some selfishness to it. But yeah, I think I would say overall, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade my life for his, that's for sure. Sad, sad fucking movie. Do you think he's brave? I don't, I don't know. Um, I, I don't see what easier path he could have chosen. He could have just fallen asleep without a pillow. Sure. That's true, I guess. And it took him 27 years to make that decision. And even then, it might not have been a decision. Here's a poem that he liked, he liked to quote, and I'd never heard it before. It's by Isaac Watts. When I feel like it's a pretty insightful poem. Isaac Watts apparently is like a hymn writer. Um, So I'll try to do my best Anthony Hopkins and read the poem. I'll just read the first verse. Tis true my form is something odd, but blaming me is blaming God. Could I create myself anew, I would not fail in pleasing you. That's heavy stuff. That really, to me, helps me understand what he must have been going through to just be like, well, I'll read the second part of the poem. It's a little bit more cryptic, but if I could reach from pole to pole or grasp the ocean with a span, I would be measured by the soul, the mind's the standard of the man. Yeah, I mean, that poem, I think, really helps to get to the bottom of where this guy was coming from his whole life. Where he's basically just trying to be seen. Essentially, he's putting himself out there, being seen in the most superficial of ways every day for money, but he's never really been seen outside of Treves, who eventually, even though, again, Treves was like, I just want to see your crazy face, dude. (laughs) And then he saw his crazy face, and he's like, yo, you got a fine-ass dick, too. But then he eventually was like, oh, and you know stuff? 
you have talent and skill and you're like a fully fledged human being. There are scenes where um, Treves brings in people to have tea or dinner with Merrick and he becomes like overwhelmed with emotion because these people are choosing to interact with him and talk to him and get to know him. Uh, and they're not running away in fear. And just that reception in and of itself, even though it is slightly manufactured or entirely, I don't know, um, means so much to him. And he is constantly declaring his gratitude to Treves merely for acknowledging him as a human being. Like, yeah, it speaks to kind of this desire, and I think all disabled people to uh, reciprocate. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense to you, Tony, but we always talk about if we were given the opportunity to give back to the people that help us on a daily basis, like it would be, it would be extremely gratifying. I, and I felt like, like that energy in all of those scenes. I've had a fantasy a bunch of times where I become able-bodied all of a sudden and I become like an attendant and just start like be, doing personal care for other disabled people. A, because I think I'd be pretty good at it because I kind of know, at least from my experience, what's good and bad. But yeah, also because it is a very cool way to be able to give back. But you also do that, though, in, in your line of work, right? Through your like suite of assistive technologies that you essentially prescribe to other uh, disabled people. Yeah, there are definitely other ways you can you can do that. And you, you, you facilitate their uh, independence in ways that is potentially uh, more permanent than an, an attendant care call. Maybe. I don't think there's like a hierarchy of ways you can help someone, but... I do think that the the scene when he started crying because she was nice to him. Oh, yeah. That was honestly like it was super sad, but it wasn't unrelatable. I definitely felt sort of like overwhelming joy when someone is just nice to me for no reason. And you can tell that they're not doing it because they have something to gain from it. Yeah. And I don't think it's, it's not necessarily rare, but when it does happen, it's special because it's different than a lot of the, a lot of the times people are nice to me, it's because of a transactional service that's being provided. Right. And so if someone is genuinely nice to me and they really have no obligation to kindness, then it is really, really powerful. And overwhelming so i could relate to them and i don't think it was manufactured yeah this is a very emotionally genuine movie like the pulling on heartstrings in it that never feels unearned no movie that's an exercise in having overwhelming empathy it it's like inarguably sentimental but still somehow authentic feeling and even when i complain that merrick is potentially too pure i still appreciate how he is portrayed yeah i wanted to ask dan i mean i'll speak for myself obviously this movie i found it relatable because i can pretty easily relate with the main character as someone who uh you know is sort of predisposed to society's ostracizing them uh, jamie i don't know if you would 
feel if you would agree that you also relate for similar reasons. I mean, I don't know. I haven't left my garage in six months, so I kind of <laughs> do feel that way. But I want to ask Dan, like, what is it that besides the theory that makes it a good movie? Like, it's it checks a lot of boxes in terms of good filmmaking. But what is it that draws you in? Do you do you find yourself relating with a character in the movie or like the overall emotion of the movie? Like, what was it that drew you in? I definitely find myself relating with Hopkins' character, Treves, a lot in terms of like that struggle of like finding the best way to be compassionate, but in a way that isn't performative and like patting yourself on the back for like being like such a good person. And like you see, Treves generally struggle with like how how exploitative, regardless of how intentional it was or not, like he may have been throughout the movie. Like that resonated with me. I don't know, like a movie that's kind of about like the cruelty of strangers, but also the kindness of strangers. That just that's always going to touch me. That that's a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about Treves as because you're right. He is very compelling in his the navigation of he's trying to help this person but at the same time he does have a lot to gain personally from doing so and professionally yeah it's a hard thing to navigate to try to find those boundaries and like and oh just being straight up it's just a very pretty movie to watch and listen to (laughs) yeah i was gonna say if i had a choice between this movie and my left foot i think the i think the aesthetics would uh, definitely win me over, uh, would definitely make Elephant Man the better choice. Why are those the two movies to pick from? Well, like I think those two films sort of approach disability um, in a similarly unflinching manner, and they're both incredibly heavy emotionally, Um, and both both disabled people sort of befall a similarly uh, depressing fate. I guess like their lives are almost like unimaginably bleak. They both find an outlet from their experience through art and through high culture and exposure to other talented artists. I mean, I want to reiterate his life isn't super bleak. You do have to remember this major point. The patient's genitals remain entirely intact (laughs) and unaffected. Oh, that's a soundboard clip if there ever was one. I do remember reading in the Wikipedia article, not to dampen your dick joke, Tony, but I do remember reading that, that like America had like push tools all over his body that exhibited an extremely unpleasant odor. Oh, yeah. And so on a daily basis, he had to endure like a, like a hygiene regimen that was pretty extensive and unpleasant. And so I, th- I think his day-to-day was rather awful and like the the hospital uh like the nurses would try to prevent merrick from like wandering the halls too much because they were afraid that he would alarm the other patients uh so so you know his social life was super regimented he was he required constant care and et cetera et cetera et cetera but his dick worked bro yeah but his dick worked yeah yeah no i i'm I'm not obviously i'm joking i i don't think that he had an easy life by any any definition, any any strength of the imagination. Dan, do you think the film would have benefited from some more Lynchian surrealism? 
I think that the vast majority of films would benefit from that. Like, really, any movie, just thinking about Lynch in general, my favorite movie of his, Inland Empire, is the one whose Wikipedia summary says two paragraphs in, like, at this point, it's difficult to describe the plot of the movie. That's that's the kind of surrealism I can do with. But I really liked how it's incorporated into the final film. And honestly, I like Lynch when he's a bit more straightforward as well. Like, there's always a good variety of Lynch being he's happy, sad, weird, terrifying, what have you. I'll take him in any form. It's weird to think that this is the movie that might have put him in line to direct Return of the Jedi, but he sadly didn't. I'm not making it up. Both he and David Cronenberg were in line to direct Return of the Jedi at one point. Can you imagine? Oh my god, imagine David Cronenberg's Jabba the Hutt. That'd be horrifying. Oh, to be wow. fair, maybe a lightsaber would make quick work of John Merrick's illness. It would, like, get rid of it, but also instantly cauterize it. There's probably a Star Wars species who looks like Joseph Merrick, too. If if Lynch were to direct a, a major uh, Star Wars sequel, then it might have been likely that Disney would not acquire it from George Lucas, <laughs> which might have led to a happier landscape of uh, science fiction films. <laughs> My overall thoughts, honestly, were the movie is a lot emotionally it took a lot out of me even though i knew going in that it was going to do that i still there were moments where i was like i don't want to watch this like it was just so real but i think that's a good thing right like i think like you said it's unflinching it it's kind of just in your face you have to accept it uh there's probably some therapeutic value in that uh it's definitely I wouldn't say it's for everyone. Do you think it takes courage to be kind in the face of unrelenting cruelty? Yeah, I'd say that. I think it takes uh, discipline at the very least. Do you ever wonder if the kindness that is typical of a lot of wheelies uh, in the face of the ignorance of other people is more... How do I phrase this question? Like, Are we conditioned to be more agreeable? Or do we arrive at like a certain capacity for adversity out of our collective experience? There's the learned helplessness thing, right? Where people mm. often feel like because they can't help themselves, they have to, they kind of give up on a lot of things. And I think on the flip side of that, you also have people who, I don't know if it's complacence, but people do get more agreeable because maybe it's almost like scarcity, like fear of losing that thing. If you if you don't have an abundance of it, whether it's like friendship or love or access to your own toilet, when you do get it, you kind of want to hold on to it as much as you can. Right. Because otherwise you might, lose it and then what if you can't get it again i guess it shouldn't really matter let me rephrase what is the difference between a doormat and someone who is courageously kind mm. hmm like courageously kind doesn't preclude you from like like not being assertive just it doesn't preclude you from being assertive at certain points yeah i agree i think that there's passive then there's aggressive, and then in the middle is assertive. So if you're like courageously kind, 
you don't have to let people walk over you. If you have healthy boundaries, then if some if you're kind to people and then they're unkind to you, then it's on you to either assert yourself and set those boundaries, or you can be complacent and let them be unkind to you more, and then you can still be, quote, courageously kind. But at what point are you just, like, losing yourself or forgetting what you want in that situation? I can't say for sure, but now this does make me want to watch a version of this movie where Merrick is, like, passive-aggressive. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> just withering remarks left and right. Are, yeah, I, I think I get what you're getting at. Like, you kind of wish he was more bitter, almost. It's not that I wish he was more bitter. It's that I sort of wish he... Um, I wish that there was a way that he... Bit back a bit more? Yeah, bit back. Or, you know, I wish there was a scene where he properly conveyed to us the, the difference between how he is treated and how he wants to be treated. Mm. Yeah. And I don't know what that would look like necessarily, but I feel like the movie missed a moment where he could demonstrate maybe to his carnival caretaker what a fucking asshole he was or you know said something to trees that could have put him in his place mm-hmm. surrounding um his assumption of the utility of their relationship i think their their relationship ended pretty healthy i yeah i, I suppose i think the movie tried to do what you wanted when he had that big outburst at the end but maybe it was just too little too late like that was literally when he was overwhelmed and i think that's that's something you and i've talked about where you know when you're setting a boundary you have to make sure you're constantly checking that boundary otherwise one day either that boundary has gone or you'll forcefully set the boundary again and it will throw people off because they weren't expecting it mm. I, I can can't I can't count on both hands the number of times I've had confrontations with close friends where a very important boundary has been crossed and it's to the point where um I've been driven to confrontation with them. And the shock of my anger and frustration at them in that instance, it almost like it it's it becomes or or it factors in to the friendship going forward. Because it's like then they realize like oh actually there I there is a, a line that I can cross with Jamie and I've just never seen that side of him that does get angry from time to time and does have to like assert that he is a person and that he does need to get on the train back to London <laughs> like stupid example or whatever but it's like there there is a consequence to uh, to being so affable and agreeable and to and to and to constantly expressing gratitude for to people for treating you the way that you should be treated. It was somewhat annoying to me that Merrick never got to the point of like really like requiring more of people. You know what I mean? I don't know if that makes sense. You're just like, man, don't you ever want to go ape shit? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like I wanted a scene where he trashes his room or something (laughs) or, you know, like deliberately scares someone who's looking in his window, (laughs) you know, like that would have felt good, I think, for him and for us in the audience. I mean, some people are just actually really kind. Yeah, I mean, 
You're a prime example of that. No. Well, but the both of you are. Oh, Dan, yeah. But really, the elephant man dares to ask the question, what if Jesus was hard to look at? <laughs> <laughs> like that kind of like pacifistic resistance. Yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. That sums it up so well. It took us a while to get there, but I'm so glad. I'm so glad we got there. Should we transition to the next bit of this episode? Yes, Righty-o. please. Wheel breakers. <laughs> so, Dan. Yes. We have a segment on this show called Wheel Breakers, where usually we will pitch a scenario, a hypothetical, where we are able to grant each other full command of our own bodies. So I can make Jamie fully able-bodied in whatever way that means to him. He gets to maintain all of his current emotions and personality traits and memories, but his body does exactly what he wants it to do at all times. I see. However, there's always a catch because I'm not, haven't finished my degree in wizardry. So I, there's always something that can go wrong. But when we have an able-bodied guest, it's a little different because, you know, you've already hit the physical jackpot. So I, we're still trying to iron out how we handle it for when we have an AB upright guest on. Wait, Tony, what does that mean, AB upright? Able-bodied. Ah. Uh, I thought you were referring to like nodes on like the human skeleton or something. <laughs> and there's like two specific nodes that quantify whether a person can weight bear. Right. Speaking of which, fun fact, Michael Jackson tried to purchase the skeleton of Elephant Man. Yep. Why? First of all, he bid $500,000, was denied, so he bid a million dollars and was still denied. But the reason he says, or it's rumored at least, that he wanted to compare his life to John Merrick's life in that he felt like he was demonstrated and uh, a victim of human curiosity freak show carnival-esque. Hmm. Uh, he actually has a music video, one of his animated videos, where you can see uh, there is a dancing elephant man skeleton in the video. Yeah, that sounds like MJ. Yeah. Anyway, fun fact. Jamie, do you have a wheel breakers? Can you come back to me, Tony? You go first. All right. All right, Jamie, I'll start with you. Either you get, unfortunately, I'm a little rusty with my wizard spells today, so I can only make you either have your current body or the body of John Merrick. Is this a wheel breakers? What are you talking about? Yeah, it's a wheel breakers because he can walk. He he has the CP shuffle just without the K walker. Like he like he has atrophy on the left side, and like he's like it almost looks like he's going to fall over. There's a scene in the film where he, when he's rushing to the train where he has to take the stairs. And I, the whole time I was worried that he was just going to eat it and like, like 
die or something, break his neck. But he didn't. And if you were at that train station, you would have to take the elevator. So you're telling me, you're asking me if I want to be myself or an elephant man? Not an elephant man, the elephant man. What would be the benefit of being the elephant man? Like, am I the full elephant man or do I just have like a few residual deformities? I'll change it. We're just putting Joseph Merrick on blast here. (laughs) I I thought maybe you'd consider it, but you're like, are you kidding me? You would never take that. All right, fine. Here's the deal, Jamie. I can make you able-bodied, but every day before you go to bed, you have to listen to a 30-minute clip, a a recording of one of your parents' uh, sex sessions. Is this the point that's just to psychologically torture Jamie? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. So he has to decide if he hates his disability enough to forever listen oh to 30 minutes a day. You know what? I'll, I'll make it 15. <laughs> I'll make it 15. I would rather be the elephant man. You lost that option. <laughs> you were like, how is that better than my current life? <laughs> and I was like, all right, let's find out. <laughs> We don't, I think I would be deeply traumatized if I had to endure that every night before bed. Uh, so yeah, uh, wheel, wheel, one million percent wheel. So you wouldn't, you wouldn't do it. You'd stay never. in your current form. Never, never, never. All right, Dan. The question for you: You either have to endure that painstaking torture at the end of every day, or you have my disability or Jamie's disability. You get to choose which one. That would be psychologically very grating. It really would. I wouldn't be able to enjoy the benefits of my new body because I'd just be... I'll go with Jamie's, but then like this is going to be a good excuse to just like build up some new uh, top speed on my new chair. Oh, okay. Break a land speed record rolling around. <laughs> so you're getting CP. I guess that's the case. But like, you know, I don't think I'd be able to handle the psychological trauma of the alternative. And I already have enough. I mean, if Jamie couldn't do it, you know, it's a good indication that his life isn't as bad. So I think you're making the right choice. Jamie, do you have one? So, like, you know the trope of, um, in movies, like the bad guy that lives inside of the glass, um, the glass chamber? And every day, like... Like the shape of water? No, no, no. I'm thinking, like, Hannibal Lecter or like Loki from the Marvel Universe or like Javier Bardem in the James Bond films or John Merrick in The Elephant Man. They just kind of like live in these like ultra hygienic uh, geometric quarters and people come in every day and visit them. Yeah. So I have the power to make you fully able-bodied, but the problem is that you have to live eight hours a day in an environment in, a, in essentially confinement and your entire social life consists of people dropping into your living quarters and having tea with you. And then in the evening, the riffraff runs by and gawks at you. So you said eight hours a day? Yeah. You get let out for like a couple hours to go for a walk. Are you giving me a salary too? <laughs> like at what point do I get to work? Well, you can work from home. Yeah, but I'll be like on a Zoom call and someone comes in and is like, hey, just like sits down with their cup of tea. Yeah. And I just have to be like, 
Hey guys, sorry, like I used to actually be disabled, but I'm able-bodied now, so people are gawking at me. Don't mind them. Exactly. (laughs) No, I would not do that. Why? It would just be such an interruption to my day. Like, imagine, like, trying to make plans. And like, hey, uh, you want to go out today? I'm like, oh, so I got that thing where people come and stare at me for four hours. Well, what if it was, like, members of high society? Like, I don't know. Uh... You're trying to sweeten the deal? Yeah. like (laughs) You're you're sweetening the deal because the original deal's just really not great. (laughs) No, but it's like... Like, what if it was Elon Musk came and hung out with you every day? Yeah, you you have coffee with, like, uh, I don't know, Jay-Z. Oh, if Jay-Z wants to hang out with me because he thinks I'm cool, that's one thing. But if he wants to hang out with me because he thinks I'm a freak show. Because you have a lot of Insta followers because you're the guy that lives in, like, a, one of those glass chambers for villains. And- oh, so you have given me a career as an <laughs> Instagram famous person. <laughs> this Wheel Breakers has gone completely off the rails. I I might take that deal. Now now you've sweetened it to a point where basically it just gives me a bunch of famous friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's for the wrong reasons. But I could still befriend them and maybe they'd be like, hey, you're actually pretty cool. Maybe I actually <laughs> just want to hang out with you. Yeah, so there's a chance that you could that, like humanize yourself to them. Yeah. All right, yeah, I'll do it. Okay. I'll do it, yeah. I have some questions for people. I'd hang out with Jay-Z. Yeah, I would hang out with Jay-Z for sure. Like, I would take the time to ask him, like, what was up a few years ago where you tried to retitle your name in all caps? <laughs> was that a loud part of your life? <laughs> so, do we give the same thing to Dan, where it's he either gets your disability or that? Because that seems like an easy deal. Or my disability or that. How do we pitch it to Dan? I don't know. I've never figured out the inverse of this for able-bodied people. It's a tricky one. Yeah. Because we have to, like, take something away, but not too much that you're like, no. I No, but I thought the idea was to make disability seem more appealing appealing than some scenario where you are able-bodied, but... Yeah, exactly. So Dan is Dan, but he's under house arrest. Well, it worked in mine. He took your disability. I'm already basically under house arrest of quarantine. (laughs) (laughs) True. I need a second. Sorry. Just tell him one of the options is my disability. And then the other one is your bones are so brittle. I'm like Samuel L. Jackson and unbreakable. Yeah. You're glass. I don't want to be glass. I finally broke a bone in my life a couple of years ago. I don't want to go through that again. <laughs> finally. It's like you're waiting for it. Sign me up. Uh, put me in a chair. I'll roll around. Probably less chance of me toppling over and breaking something. Yeah, the problem is, Jamie, we're so good at this podcast that people listen to it and they go, it doesn't sound that bad. And then so it's hard to make a scenario where people go, I don't want to do that. Because we already make people go, yeah, that's pretty cool. yeah so that's my answer i'd say all right well that's fair that's a good answer well dan yep thank you very much for helping us figure out and dissect this movie i really think that you were the right person for it because it is a very heady movie and you kind of have to have a a pretty eclectic and well-versed background to really be able to 
understand why this movie is this movie. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's it's one of those movies where you can't just sit someone down and say, watch this movie. Yes. <laughs> There's a lot going on. I, yes. I, I can't envision a scenario where someone pops a bowl of popcorn and sits down with their family to watch Elephant Man. Yeah, you can't bring someone home on a date and be like, yo, I got this movie for us to watch. Yeah, there's no such thing as Elephant Man and chill. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, hey, Lynch is my favorite director, so I'm always happy to have the opportunity to chat his stuff. Oh, there's a good one. Uh, so you get to be completely able-bodied, but for every first date that you have, y- you have to show Elephant Man. So it's no different from how my first dates currently go. Is what <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. You're talking to to someone who on one of the few dates he went on in high school, like said, Hey, let's watch Silence of the Lambs. (laughs) (laughs) And how was the second date? Oh, that implies there was a second date. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, Dan, is there anything that, is there any way that people can reach out to you if they would like to get in touch with you? Well, you can find uh, the many pictures I take on Instagram at Dan Ashtree Lane, all one word. I think I might post them tonight. But yes, that's where you can find me online. Oh, and also uh, my letterboxed account is Damien Kara 73 D-A-M-I-E-N-K-A-R-R-A-S-73, named after the younger priest from The Exorcist. So yeah, if you just want some movie reviews, that's my letterboxed account. Amazing. All right, well, thank you for coming on, Dan. Gentlemen, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yes, that was fun. Thanks a lot, Dan. 